Psalm 8 is the next passage of scripture that we find ourselves in our series of studies through the first book of the Psalms, a series that we're calling The Songs of Our Savior. And by of, that preposition is to refer to both songs about our Savior and songs that our Savior sang. Last week's Psalm, Psalm 7, we considered a lot of thoughts regarding the way Jesus may have sung Psalm 7. This week, I want us to think more about the idea that Psalm 8 is about Jesus. In fact, one of the ways I've tried to communicate the importance of today's psalm and your understanding of who Jesus is and what the Bible is about is by asking the question when I'm doing discipleship and teaching people just the importance of the Bible and the Old Testament is to ask this kind of challenge question, and it's, what are the top five most important Bible passages from the Old Testament to help you understand the whole big story of the Bible? If you're new to the Bible, you may not realize that the Bible is a broader, bigger story in a collection of books. It's its own mini library. In fact, the word Bible means literally a collection of books. And so we have a collection of 66 books, 40 plus different authors written over the span of 1,500 years, plus or minus. That's the Bible. That's what the word means. And this is the Holy Bible because it's a collection. It's a small mini library of words that came from God. So of the sections of the Old Testament, to make sense of the New Testament, what are central, vital, most important for you to get the whole big story of the Bible. And I've actually asked this question before, so this could be a pop quiz review for any of you long-term attenders and members. But five passages that I would like you to memorize, jot down, think about, know very well if you would like to know your Bible are Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 12 to 22, Exodus 2 to 20, 2 Samuel 7, and Isaiah 53. I'm going to say them again, and this time I'm going to give you what I think is the short summary for each of those sections. The covenant with creation, Genesis 1 to 11. The covenant that God makes with Noah, which is about creation, that is rooted in the 1 to 11 narrative. The covenant with creation, Genesis 1 to 11. If you don't know Genesis 1 to 11 and the covenant with creation, you're not going to make sense of the Bible, period. It's foundational. Second important section, the covenant made with Abraham, Genesis 12 to 22. The covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12 to 22. The covenant made with Israel or through Moses, Exodus chapter 3 to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 2 or 3, whenever you want to start Moses' ministry in the book of Exodus. But the central idea is the covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses. So we've got a covenant with creation, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. Are you noticing a pattern? Fourth passage, the covenant with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The covenant made with David. It's summarized in 2 Samuel 7. 
And by the way, if any of you are like, covenant, I really don't normally hear that word in normal English conversation. Covenant just means a promise, a promise that God makes with his people. First with creation, then with Abraham, then the Abrahamic people through Moses, then with David. The fifth and final covenant is the new covenant, the promised new covenant. The fifth and final passage, Isaiah 53, the covenant that God makes really with Jesus and with us, the church. And it is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 would be a good place to see that covenant framework. Another great passage would be Ezekiel 33 and 34. That's another excellent section. Ezekiel and Jeremiah have similar, I think, usages. But those are your top five passages. And I would want to really challenge and urge you that if you have any interest in the Bible whatsoever, and you have very little knowledge, very little familiarity with these five passages, this would be a great place to start. So then, our psalm, Psalm 8, it didn't make it in the top five. But that's because it's not specifically one of these key covenant passages. I really do think that the Bible is a big story, and it's a covenantal story. But furthermore, if we were to expand our list to the top ten most important passages, well, then we'll find our psalm. Because now I would start including which passages in the New Testament do they make sense of Jesus and quote in the Old Testament. And that would be, I think, Exodus 34, Daniel 7, Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110. Those passages are referenced a ridiculous amount by biblical authors just constantly being referred to to make sense of God and Jesus and all of these covenants we were talking about. So God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 34 is one of the most quoted Bible passages by other Bible authors. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He will by no means clear the guilty, though. He will punish the sins to the father of the children, to their children's children, etc. That passage is very, very important. Exodus 34, Daniel 7, and the Son of Man rising on the clouds of glory. Psalm 1 and 2, especially Psalm 2. You are my son, and I will put my son on the holy hill, and all of the nations will bow down and worship him. Our psalm today, Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. So that's just a little brief introduction to try and communicate to you that I think what we're about to study here, Psalm 8, is extremely important for us to make sense of the entire Bible. In fact, throughout our day today, we will touch on Genesis 1, we will touch on the Old Testament and Psalm 8, we will hit the New Testament, and then we'll finish our worship service in Revelation. We'll, we'll cover the span of the whole Bible. And that's basically what I'm trying to claim here, is that if you get Psalm 8, I think you'll really get the whole Bible. So let's read it. Let's begin with just reading Psalm 8 and starting to think through what it's saying and why it's so important. To the choir master, according to the, grit, the Gittith, a psalm of David, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, Psalm 8 is so important. I think we can't really cover everything, especially it's, it's warm, we're outside. I think we need to make sure you really get it. We're going to spend two weeks on Psalm 8, and I'll give you the big idea for both weeks, because the big idea of Psalm 8 remains the same today, and it will be next week and forever. The big idea, as you see on your handout, is that the king's power is perfected through weak humans. This week's psalm I'm summarizing in in terms of our focus and our emphasis is that this is a psalm. It is a song that was sung and worshipped in the context of Jewish peoples for ages. And this song is about kings, plural. A song about kings. Next week, we are going to narrowly focus in on verse 2. And we're going to try and unpack how a song about the majestic kings receives praise and strength from infants. So next week will be a song about infants, babies. Sucklings is one translation of this Hebrew word. So two weeks, both weeks, we'll unpack the power of the Almighty King being perfected, being made complete, being best displayed through weak humans, even babies. But hold that thought till next Sunday. For now, let's just make sure we understand that this psalm is about kings and his power. So let's take the three points that's on your handout one at a time. First, Yahweh is the king of creation. Point two, he, Yahweh, crowned humanity over the creation. Point three, he crowned Jesus over the destructive power of decreation, sin and death. That's the flow of today's message. We're going to look at them each briefly. And hopefully, by God's grace, he will use this sermon, this message, and this time, not to just stimulate your mind, but to lead your whole being into worship and awe and wonder of the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. First, Yahweh is the king of creation. This is repeated. Verse 1 and verse 9 have bookends. Bookends that we will dive in a little bit more in terms of the, the nerdy, geeky kind of structure that the Psalms have. I'm going to not dive into that this week. I want to save that for next week. I think it will make next week's message pop a little bit more. But for now, just observe verse 1 and verse 9, the exact same verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This repeated refrain, this bookend to our Psalm begins with, O Lord, all capital letters. It's the name of God, the personal name Yahweh. That's why point one is Yahweh is the Lord. He is the king. Lowercase l-o-r-d, Lord, is the 
common everyday word, Adonai, and it would just mean ruler, king. And so we have Yahweh, our king. O Yahweh, our Lord, our ruler, our king. How majestic. Majesty is a word for royalty. How majestic is your name? The word name here is the representation of all that he is. So his name represents his being, his essence, and his name is majestic. Are you getting it? It's pretty straightforward once you start unpacking just each of these words. Yahweh is the Lord, and Yahweh is majestic, and he is majestic over all the earth. He is the king of creation. This is just a a simple, obvious, straightforward point, but it's an important point. It's the first point of the whole Bible. The Bible begins with a creator king, the king of all creation. The word majestic is a word that communicates power and royalty. Every time it's used throughout the Old Testament and Hebrew literature, it means to be impressed, intimidating, invincible, It's used to talk about a mighty ship or a powerful leader or a noble royal ruler. That's majestic. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, ruler, king, how powerful and majestic is your name because you are the king of creation, ruler over all the earth. And you can notice that that's the meditation of the psalmist. You almost picture David or whoever's writing this on behalf of David or dedicating it to David, whoever this psalmist is, you you picture them in ancient days without city light pollution, in the middle of nowhere, in the desert, staring up at the sky and seeing every star on a clear night and saying, when I look at your heavens, the word heavens there, shemayim, is the word for sky. When I look up into the sky, up into the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. So picture David, psalmist, lying on their back, looking up into the heavens and saying, wow, power. In many ways, this psalm is a meditation on Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And and what was the means by which God, the king of creation, created? And the Lord God said, let there be light. Ten times, Genesis chapter one, ten times, and the Lord said, and God said. God said, and then it was. He is a king. Kings make orders and commands and make edicts and say, Here's what's going to happen, and you're going to obey. This king, the king over creation, he speaks and stuff appears. He speaks and all of creation obeys and listens. All of creation exists because of the king of creation. Through his word, the word of his power, he spoke and it became, and the writer of Hebrews takes it a step further and says, and by the word of his power, it's sustained. It's being upheld. The king of creation did not just start the ball into motion like this ancient clock that got started and it's set for the rest of eternity. No, he sustains it by his enduring eternal word. Yahweh is the king of creation. And this psalm is a beautiful meditation of Genesis 
1, the king who spoke, and it was. When you read Genesis 1, you're not supposed to primarily be thinking about debates between science and, and Bible. You're supposed to be thinking about debates between Egyptian gods, rival deities, creation stories from Babylon or Assyria. That's, that's the contemporary literature that Genesis would have been written in. And when you do, you know that they had a belief in many gods and the gods were fighting each other. And in Genesis 1, there is one God. And that one God is described in Genesis 2 as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And that Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, he speaks and there's nobody else to fight with, to argue with. Everything just listens. That's Genesis 1 and 2 in a nutshell. And that's why the psalmist says, when I look up at the heavens and I'm reminded of the raw power of your word, I stand in awe. How majestic. Oh, Lord, our Lord. So do you know him? Is this your king? Yes. Are you acknowledging him as your king? Wow, that's the difference. Many of us here, members of embassy, Christian visitors of this church, regular attenders, we acknowledge this king. Everyone else does not give thanks to him, pay him homage, give him worship. But he is your king. He's the king over all creation. This is pretty bold, isn't it? The Bible confronts you and says, I am your king. I am the one true supreme ruler over all. Well, I don't want you to be my king. I want to be my own king. I can acknowledge that that's the state for many of us when we're born into this world. But the ultimate reality that we are confronted with in the God-centered Bible is you're not the king. He's king and the only king. And the point of this psalm is really, I think, to just pause after five heavy laments. David's been running for his life, asking for salvation and deliverance. And then out of nowhere, Psalm 8 shows up. Oh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And next week, I want to unpack why that is. But for now, let's just realize that Psalm 8 is to just help you look up into the heavens and be in awe and wonder and acknowledge the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So do you know him? Are you in awe of him? One of the best ways, I think, in the modern world that psalms, the spirit of the psalms, theological, dense, biblical truth that's being communicated in a chanty, sing-songy form in the context of a worship song is probably something that many of us here aren't as familiar with. And one of the best modern parallels of the psalms that I could think of over the course of this sermon series so far is what's from the African-American tradition in their churches called whooping. W-H-O-O-P-I-N-G. Whooping. If you've never heard of this phrase or are familiar with this experience, I'll just give you a little article definition, very brief. Whooping. It's when a preacher, typically within the African-American community, begins very calmly speaking in a conversational tone. Occasionally, we'll use eloquence and prose, but gradually, as the sermon goes on, begins to speak rapidly, excitedly, and then starts to chant his words to a beat. It becomes a song. The sermon literally becomes a song in African-American traditional whooping sermons. Finally, this author says, the preacher reaches an emotional peak at the climax end of the sermon in which the chanted speech becomes a tonal song merging with clapping and shouting and the whole congregation is on their feet singing and worshiping the Lord. Whooping. 
Maybe you just learned a new word. That's fun, right? Well, here's a little excerpt of maybe a whooping excerpt that you've maybe heard before. It's one of my favorite of all time. It's by um, S.M. Lockridge, and you can look this up. I would encourage you to listen to it live recording from him himself. I am not an expert whooper, as you already know. I am very white, yes. But I just want, the content of this is amazing. It's incredible. And, and the title of this whoop, if you want to look it up on YouTube or the internet, is That's My King. And he says, the Bible teaches us that he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven and he's the king of glory. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. David in the Psalms says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem of higher education and criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine in true theology. He is the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. Now that's my king. The miracle of the age, the superlative of everything, He's the only one that is able to supply every single one of your needs simultaneously. He supplies the strength for the weak. He is available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick and he cleanses the leper. He forgives the sinner and he discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged and he rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the conqueror, the captain of the conquerors, the highway of the holiness, the gateway to glory, the master of the mighty, the head of the heroes, the leader of the legislators, the overseer of the overcomers, the governor of the governors, the prince of princes, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that's my king. My king, his office is manifold. His promises are sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I wish... I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He is invincible and irresistible. I'm trying to tell you about him. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man try and explain him. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. That's my king. Is he yours? Are you acknowledging the king of kings? Yahweh is the king of creation, point one. Point two, 
He, king over all, crowned humanity over creation. Really, the main point of our psalm is the infinite blessing, the finite. The infinite, intimately caring about dust. Starting in verse 2, second part of this psalm is out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look in the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The point of this psalm is that the infinite, all-powerful king has crowned humans, man, mankind, with glory and honor. So if we're crowned, that's royalty. Does that mean we're kings? I think we already established there is one king over all creation. You should submit to him, repent and obey him. You should live your life centered around him, be in awe of all that he is, but at the same time realize his love, care, and concern for little balls of dust that have been formed from the ground and given the divine breath of life. Humans are not the king of creation, but humans are royalty. They are crowned. They are prince and princess. And as we spent an entire spring semester of teaching on Saturday morning classes, the audio of which can be made available if you'd like a link, and start working through these teachings, the greatest issue facing the church today is the teaching from the Bible about what it means to be a human. From every which way you could think about the modern issues that are in the news, that are in the world today, it is this precise point. It's not an attack first on God. It's a straight, direct attack on the Bible's teaching that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. And Psalm 8 is providing us a beautiful commentary, poetic meditation of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. I already told you that Genesis 1 to 11 is foundational for everything, so you should be reading it later this afternoon before you go to bed, tomorrow morning when you wake up. And when you do so, you're going to notice that the Lord God spoke and made all that is. He specifically made humans in the image of God. As we talked about in the class, image means kingly, a kingly representative, not just the physical representative, image as in a authoritative ruler. God is putting in his world prince and princesses, vice regents all around the world, and he is having us not be his slaves, but his co-rulers in a covenant. The covenant partnership that we talked about that summarizes the entire relationship of the Bible is that God wants to work with, not have us work for him as if we're these slaves, but rather work with the king of creation as royalty. And then in this way, Psalm 8 is pointing us backwards to Genesis 1 and 2. 
But Psalm 8 is also, I think, prophetically pointing us forward. Forwards to the ultimate king of kings and a human. And the clue in the text that I thought really gripped my own heart, that I'm hoping will grip yours, is right here in the text of verse 4. Contrasting verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I'm in awe, infinite power, majesty, what a great God. How is it that that created, powerful king cares about, is mindful of humans? Man is being paralleled and contrasted with son of man. So what's a, a son of a man? Well, another human. So the parallel is, why are you mindful? Why would you even think about us if you're that powerful? He's not so smug that he's up in the heavens and just says, I don't care about any of you. But many of you, you need to be reminded of that today. He does care about you. He is mindful of you. But the word care, it's fine translation, communicates a lot. But the word is about visiting. Care in such a way that you would come and visit. Spend time with. What is man that you would think about him and go spend time and visit him. And I think that's the clue that I'm talking about that I want you to meditate on that thinks Psalm 8 points backwards clearly to Genesis 1. But Psalm 8 points forward to the ultimate visitation of God. Has God ever displayed his love and concern and thoughts towards humans to so care for them that he would visit them? Where in the Bible has he done that? Well, in various ways and places. But as we already had read for us earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, the king of creation makes humans rulers over creation, but we have messed that up royally. Very poorly have we been stewards of this earth and creation. We have used this status and this power that we've been given, and we have used it to hurt and destroy, to cause death instead of bring life. We have created systems and cities and all kinds of wonderful human inventions that are literally killing us. Sure, science is great, but it's also making it easier for us to destroy one another, quietly, silently. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth because you care for lowly, weak humans. So much so that you would visit them in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Psalm 8 being quoted by the author of Hebrews. This is one of the key references for understanding the whole Bible is Hebrews' use of Psalm 8 in chapter 2. Let me read it again and just to encourage any of you that have a hard time remembering Bible verses and you're like, it says somewhere. Well, that's how this passage begins. It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking, but it's been testified somewhere, somewhere in that Bible. It says the following. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Sound familiar? Psalm 8. It's not the angels who are given rule over the earth. It's humans. And that's the point that the Hebrews author is making. 
But then, the psalm end quote, back to the author's point, and he says, now why did I bring that up? Why did I bring up Psalm 8? And it says in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2, now in putting everything in subjection to him, humans, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Extremely important to understand the logic of Hebrews and the Bible and the world right now. Do you understand that humans were given authority to rule over and care for the earth? And that we were to live eternally, immortally, forever and ever, taking care of creation by the rule of God, by the ways of God, through the commands of God, through the spirit of God. We were to forever live as God's prince and princess in perfect harmony with God on the earth. But as I mentioned, we messed this up terribly. And as a result, because of our own doing, our own leadership over the earth, we brought death into the world. And right now, if you've not paid attention to anything in the world, please pay attention to this one constant theme. Death reigns, not humans. Death wins, you lose. Get as much money as you want. Death will take your money and you'll have nothing except a whole bunch of money with nothing to do with it when you're in the grave. You can get a lot of power, a lot of political prestige. You can climb the ladder in your corporate office. Go on and on and think about all the things that you could try and do, but you will never beat death. And that's the point here. At present, we don't see that humans are ruling like they should. Looks like they're being subjected to evil and suffering and ultimately death. So then, the turning point of human history, the good news of the Bible, verse 9. But, have you ever noticed that the Bible always turns on a but? So many great but passages. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. But we see Jesus, the author says. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Well, he's a human. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, suffered death. And because of that suffering, the author says, because of suffering death, we have a king over not just creation, but a king over new creation, a king over decreation, a king over suffering, a king over death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That king, if he's your king, means that you can have the confidence of no longer submitting yourself to the reign and rule of death. He tasted death for, for you, for everyone. If you would submit yourself to this king, Yahweh, the king of kings, created the world and put humans in charge of it, but we didn't do a good job. So a human came to restore the work and calling of humans. And that human, Hebrew says, is Jesus Christ. Through his death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Think about the, the image of Jesus. He's, he's unlike any other king. His crown is a crown of thorns. 
His throne is a, is a cross. He's exalted and lifted up, not in a, a palace. He's sent out of the temple, out of the city, outside of the gate, where all of the scum and criminals and dirt bags get killed and crucified. And there he was, and that was his enthronement ceremony. That was his coronation of human king. This is what we do with God in a nutshell. Humans reject his rule and say, we want to do it our way, and the result is death. And if we had the chance, God was right in front of us, push comes to shove, we'll choose ourselves over God. And we'll put God to death. That's exactly what we did. That's exactly what we do. So if you would be convicted of that reality, realize how presumptuous and pretentious and arrogant it is to think that you're a better ruler than God and that you could be the king over creation. If you've not seen the, the wake behind your life so far and looked back and said, how have I done at being a ruler over my family, my own personal life, my time, my finances? Anybody just want to say, guys, I've got it all together. I really love to hear that testimony. But here's what we are. We're a collection of people that look back at the wake of everything we've done and we say, we have messed this up just like you're saying, Pastor Phil. We have death and destruction in our wake and we need a savior. And the Bible tells us that the son of man, Jesus Christ, was made a little lower than the angels. He went from heaven down to the earth, down to under the earth, was buried for three days, and then God did not leave him there. He was raised triumphantly, defeating death, and then rightfully crowned with glory and honor as a human, reigns in heaven right now at the Father's right hand. Is that your king? It's the end of the sermon now. It seems fitting for some whooping again, right? S.M. Lockridge's climactic finish wasn't where I left off. He continued, and it got really, really good. But I figured we should save that for the end because that's the spirit of a good whoop. In honor of him, I did create a few lines myself. I want to share them and realize this is why I'm not a whooper. But I, I thought of this in light of our sermon. In Hebrews chapter 2, I wrote the following. He's the Lord who was lowered. He's the Savior who was slain. He's the death defeater. He's the crowned and the crucified. He is the honorable judge that was judged. That's my king. Or better, more eloquently, Lockridge says, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him, and death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He's always been, and he will always be. He had no predecessor, and he will have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he will never resign. That's my king. So praise the Lord. That's my king. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The glory is all thine. And when you get through all of the forever and evers, and ever and ever, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now in the name of your son, Jesus, and we want to pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to transform the lives of those who would hear your word your gospel of good news, the message of hope 
of salvation. That a king, a human king, Jesus Christ, reigns over creation, reigns over heaven and earth, reigns over death and destruction and decreation. We praise you, Father, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your majestic work, the work of creation and the work of redemption. We praise you, God, for the way you have revealed yourself as an unmatched, unparalleled king over all. And we especially praise you that that majesty is displayed not by pomp and circumstance, but by loving the lowly, by intimacy with the finite. And I pray that we would look more like you, that we would care for the weak and the suffering. We would care for the sick and the hurting. I pray that as a church family, when there are those that are in need of healing and, and prayer and, and reaching out to and they're, they're struggling and depressed, Father, I pray that we be a community of people that look a lot like the King of Kings who is mindful of, visits, and cares for the weak and the lowly. May your power be perfected through our human weakness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.